Support for this episode comes from the University of San Francisco's SWIG program in Jewish Studies and Social Justice, better known as JSSJ. As trailblazers in formally linking Jewish studies with social justice, JSSJ is excited to announce the first-ever graduate-level certificate in JEDI, Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. This unique program gives professionals the opportunity to learn from scholars and activists, offering a blend of academic study and real-world application. So whether you want to expand your knowledge for personal development, boost skills and techniques in your classroom, or bring invaluable JEDI skills to your organization, this program will give you all the necessary tools and resources. Fall classes begin on August 27th. Learn more and apply now at usfca.edu jedi. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 381, Rites of Passage. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And we are excited to dive back into our series on the B-Mitzvah, this time starting with the B-Mitzvah of teenagers, but actually moving past that because our guest today, Amichai Laulavi, and his organization, LabShul, is really doing the thing that we've been alluding to for a while and talking about, which is as we start to think about the B-Mitzvah, how does that get us thinking differently about other rites of passages that we have in Jewish life or that maybe we ought to have in Jewish life that we don't currently have. So we're really thrilled to be having that conversation with Amichai Laulavi. Before we do, I just want to mention that it's been a while since we've actually asked any of y'all for money. We have been really busy promoting on yeshiva classes, and you might say those cost money. Don't we get money from that? We sort of do, but we actually pay out the vast majority of that money to the teachers who teach the Anyeshiva classes. So we still need your donations to keep this podcast going, to keep our other work going. We just had over a thousand people register for Shavuot Live. Many, many people were there for many, many hours, including five stalwarts who were there for the entire 24 hours. Neither of those people were Lex or me. Incredible. Now, I would ask those people for a big donation, but I actually think we should be giving them a big donation for their incredible contributions to the event because the people who were there really did contribute a tremendous amount to the event. As all of our listeners do, we are trying to build a community of people who are thinking differently about Judaism. And in order to do that, we need your help. So any amount is helpful. Now would be a good time to pause the audio and just head to judaismunbound.com donate. And there you can make a donation. $18 is wonderful. If you listen every single week, we love the idea of $1 for every hour that you listen to of the podcast. So make it $50 or $52 would be wonderful. We have never missed a Friday since 2016. So it's definitely $52 if you're trying to give a dollar for every hour that you've listened to. And if you're able to donate more than that, of course, that really helps a tremendous amount because there are a lot of people out there that can't afford to make a donation. And so your larger donations help make up for that. Head over to judaismunbound.com slash donate and make your donation and then come right back and listen to this wonderful conversation. And I mean wonderful. This is going to be a lot of really interesting ideas. So now let's jump into our conversation with Amichai Lavi. He needs very little introduction because he is a true friend of the pod. This is his fourth visit to Judaism Unbound. He was our guest in episodes 29 and 219. He appears to like the numbers 2 and 9, and also on a bonus episode. Now, today's episode, 381, includes none of those numbers, no 2, no 9, but he's still willing to be here with us, and we're grateful to him. 
So just a few words of introduction. Amichai Lavi is the co-founder, senior clergy, and spiritual leader of Labshul, which is an artist-driven, everybody-friendly, God-optional pop-up experimental community for sacred Jewish gatherings based in New York City and reaching the world. Amichai Lavi is also the creator of Storytelling, He serves on the Leadership Council of the New York Jewish Agenda, is a member of the Global Justice Fellowship of the American Jewish World Service, the Advisory Council of the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, an advisor to the Jerusalem Open House, and a founding faculty member of the Reboot Network. He has rabbinical ordination from the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. And in 2022, he began publishing Below the Bible Belt, a daily digital project that extends over 42 months, critically queering and rereading all 929 chapters of the Hebrew Bible. We are really thrilled to have him back on Judaism Unbound, this time to talk about rites of passage. So, Amichai Lavi, welcome back to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Gentlemen, I'm delighted to be back in conversation with you both. I think you're the first guest who appears to be meditating as we start. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not the only one. Uh, you know, you got to focus. This is a big deal. So take me away. <laughs> so we've been on this journey for the last few weeks talking about the history of the bar mitzvah, the history of the bat mitzvah, the history of the bi mitzvah, different organizations that are doing interesting, creative things with this rite of passage for Jewish teenagers. We know that Labshul is going far beyond Jewish teenagers, but as a starting point, can we just talk about what Labshul does with the age cohort that we're generally talking about when we talk about B-Mitzvah, and how did you come to think about it the way you're thinking about it? Like, at what point did you say, we have to do things differently than the usual, and, and why? So, as some of you may know, the Labshul community in New York started off as a theater company called Storytelling front and center in our activity was the reclaiming and the reimagining of the Jewish ritual of storytelling, the Torah service, where we bring in the live subtitles, the translation, the adaptation, talking back to the ancient text so that the written text and the spoken text are alive in a meaningful way. This is a reclamation of the ancient tradition of the Metulgaman, the translator that was part of Jewish life until a thousand years ago. We decided to bring it back so that there'll be more literacy and engagement with what scripture has to offer our modern lives and where we talk back, where we craft a new Torah that corresponds to the old. We went to different denominations. We went to summer camps. We started going to day schools and Hebrew schools. A few years into our experimentation with storytelling in the early 2000s, we had a board member who said, my kid is going to have a bat mitzvah. Can we use the storytelling technique of the Torah service being upgraded for her bat mitzvah? And we thought, sure, let's try. She was great. It was great. Instead of just chanting Torah, this uh, young woman also learned how to be a translator meaning how to write her own script, which translates verse by verse the Hebrew Torah into a meaningful, in her case, I believe, a first-person monologue with interactions with the people who were there. So instead of just being a very straight so-called Torah service, it became something much more engaging. And as her rite of passage, it gave her the ability not just to show off her skills with Hebrew chanting, but as a thoughtful presenter and teacher. 
after that one, we did a couple more. And I think it was soon after that that we realized that actually we're onto something. The main opportunity for engagement with the Jewish story in the Jewish community has been for 2,500 years, the ritual that is known as the Torah service. For the last couple of hundred years, for sure for the last century, the numbers of people attending a synagogue on a Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon, or on a Monday or on a Thursday, when the Torah service takes place, and we do the story hour, th- those numbers are dwindling. Less and less people are engaged in the Torah service. But if you ask any modern American Jew, have you ever been to a bar mitzvah? <laughs> the numbers are pretty high. If you're going to ask somebody who's not Jewish in the 21st century, have you been to something Jewish? They will very often say, oh, yeah, yeah, my boss's daughter's bat mitzvah or something. Meaning that Jewish ritual, when we tell Torah to ourselves and to whoever we live and love, that ritual is alive and well, except it's not on your basic synagogue rotunda for everybody to come with. It's alive in different ways. So that's why we started realizing that if we want to impact a new sense of literacy and engagement with Jewish life, let's focus on where people actually show up. And they show up for a bar, bat, bnei, bi mitzvah. So that's how we began in the early 2000s. I would say by 2010, uh, certainly by 2013, when Lab Shul officially became the next phase of storytelling, we did several dozens. Since then, we've done several hundred of these rituals. Can you talk a little bit more? Let's zoom forward to today. How is a B mitzvah at Lab Shul different from a B mitzvah anywhere else? And also, you mentioned something about a rite of passage. You use the term rite of passage. And I'm wondering whether it's not just that the trappings of the bee mitzvah are different at Lab Shul, like it looks different or different yeah. things are done. Maybe they aren't. Maybe it's actually kind of similar. But are you thinking, do you think you're thinking differently about what the bee mitzvah is than perhaps many other places? Like it's a rite of passage from what to what? Why do we have this? Mm-hmm. Great. So there's lots of questions here that I, I'd like to address. We imagine this coming of age journey to be unique and to meet people where they're at, whether they are Jewish, Jewish, Jew-jacent, whether they are familiar with synagogue life, which for the most part not, and whether they are into this journey because they want to mark a moment of being Jewish and or do they want to mark a moment of being human, inspired by, empowered by the Jewish toolbox that allows us to think thoughtfully about growing up. And the bar mitzvah situation, when it became a bat mitzvah in the early 1920s and is now a b mitzvah, is an opportunity to think about growing up in a human way. But I have a question for you guys. I remember that about 12 or 13 years ago, we started using b mitzvah. Oh, wow, we don't have to do borrow bat. We can be non-gendered. And B is just the letter B, O-B-E, B mitzvah. We started using it. And then we're like, oh, other people are using it. So I don't know whether we get credit. There's no copyright. I have said many times that that Labshul is the first community I heard B mitzvah from. And it's where I learned it from. I generally stay away from attributing any language things to one source because I think it's often like we don't know. But I've heard others quote you um, at, at Labshul is doing that too. 
Well, that feels good. Thank you very much. Uh, Dan, do you, do you concur? I, I concur <laughs> in the sense that I have so little memory for where I hear any idea. <laughs> Short answer is I have no idea. Okay, so dear listeners, if you are hearing this and you're like, no, 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 Rabbi Amichai, I've been doing B-Mitzvah since like 1995, please let us know. It makes perfect sense to um, to do the B-Mitzvah, and there's so many beautiful creative ways that people are reimagining the ceremony. I'll tell you what's at the core of what we do. First of all, like I said, at the very beginning of doing it, we realized that the way the Jewish people have been inviting the young to come of age is by inviting the young to be storytellers. Now, we don't think of it exactly in this way. About a thousand plus years ago, in the Bar Mitzvah, as we know it began, a 13-year-old boy was invited to basically become a participant in ritual life by demonstrating his basic ability of chanting the blessing before and after the Torah service. The kid would get an aliyah. He would be invited to rise up and be part of the adult quorum of 10 males. Later on, it became that the kid was invited to actually chant a part of the Torah portion. Later on, it would become that it would be the haftarah, the prophetic part. For whatever reason, partially, you don't have to know the vowels by heart. You can read them from the book. You know, Kiddush evolved, and then around that, the huge party evolved, and now it's the Titanic and Star Wars theme and all that. But um, <laughs> the evolution is around inviting the young person to be part of the storytelling event of our people. And as I explained to many young people when I meet with them, I ask them to think about all other rituals that they know in which young people come of age in the world. People might have learned about the way the Lenape people, the First Nations of this country, lead their children into hunting or vision quest or fishing or weaving, ways in which they learn how to be responsible stewards of their culture and help lead their people. That's been done for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. Uh, we know of other things that happen in different cultures. But I ask the kids, what's a way in which you become a grown-up in today's reality? And they will eventually will get to the driving test. That is the modern test. It is a rite of passage that you cannot fail, whether that's at 16 or 18, whatever in order to vote, in order to have your driver's license and get into a bar and drink at 21. The driving is the modern American, modern Western way of equipping a child to be a responsible adult that is able to, God forbid, be killed or kill, and we want them to be a safe adult. So then I ask the kids, what do you think is the equivalent in the Jewish community and why is it storytelling? Because the Jewish people have been on the road for so many centuries and we don't want to schlep too many things with us. And so the skill set with which we equip youth to be the adults in our community is not how to be a farmer or a hunter or a driver, but how to be a storyteller. We entrust you with our story. That is our most treasured commodity. However, in most cases, when a young person in today's reality, by having the kids chant words from Torah that they might not understand, we're, we're losing the big idea here. So we shifted. We want to equip young people, and we'll talk about all ages, to be the storytellers of their lives, to take a story from our tradition, from the Torah, and to talk back to it, to re reinterpret it, and to find where their personal story meets the collective story. 
to perhaps chant if they have the time and the ability to learn how to read Hebrew and how to learn how to chant. It's a wonderful skill. However, for most kids, that's not the reality. Your average kid is going to have 40 hours in a school year of extracurricular training around their B mitzvah. In 40 hours, we want to make sure that this kid at the age of 12, who may have had very little previous Jewish exposure, understands some of where they come from, understands culture, understands history, understands scripture and myth. Maybe have a talk about conversations that have to do with God or spirit. Maybe it has to do with puberty and coming of age. It might have to do with Israel or the Holocaust. And in all of that, we want to make sure that the kid is prepared to have a rite of passage to stand in the presence of family and friends and make sense of their legacy. So if we focus on those 40 hours, 25 on learning Hebrew and how to chant Torah, we're not going to get into the depth of what the story is about. But if we shift it and we give this kid the ancient Jewish tool of being the translator, then they spend time learning the story. They're critical thinkers. They're thoughtful makers of Midrash, which is the Jewish word for creative legends and interpretation. They become what we call the maven, the mevin, the person who understands their role in this relay race and hands it over. And then the ceremony becomes an engaging conversation for all the people involved, Jewish, Jewish, other. They see that the kid is animated, that they're not just chanting words they don't understand. They are the storytellers of their tradition for the day. And we structure the curriculum around this main skill, this storytelling skill. So around that, we have a whole curriculum that I can talk about. But that is, I think, the main difference. So I have a two-part question, and they're both kind of funky and specific, and we'll see how this goes. Uh, the first is about what you mentioned before, the phrase be mitzvah. The reason why I know that I have quoted Labshul as being one of the early pioneers of that term, maybe the first, I don't know. But the reason why I was like ready to affirm yes to you on that is that I have mentioned it a number of times, specifically when people are discussing like, what should we call this? What what should be a gender neutral name for like that, that's beyond bar and bat mitzvah? And I've heard people say b'nai mitzvah, which sort of feels it is a plural in Hebrew, but it is a masculine plural. Um, I've heard B mitzvah. I'm going to come back to that. I've heard Brit mitzvah, like covenant of the commandment, a variety of options. But sometimes I hear people say, ugh, I don't like B mitzvah because B mitzvah is sort of a hodgepodge of English and Hebrew. And I usually respond to them. That's why I love B mitzvah. That's to me the whole point. What you said before about meeting people, whether they're 12 or 13 or they're adults having a B mitzvah at a different age meeting people on their own speaking trip. So I'm speaking about people who are English speakers first. This B-mitzvah is not the right term, probably for for people whose first language is Hebrew or in an Israeli context. It might not be the right term in countries where the letter B, where that sound does not convey the same set of things. In Mm -hmm. an American context with the English alphabet, B-mitzvah is a signal of, ah, I'm I'm combining an alphabet I know, the letter B, with a language, a history, a story that I might not know as well. That is that I'm, you know, embracing. That's the mitzvah. That's the, you know, the Jewish story, the Jewish people. Like we could talk about it as commandment or good deed or whatever, but I honestly don't think it's any of those. It's, you know, you're you're opting into this Jewish story in some meaningful way. 
And that's why storytelling is a powerful way to, to convey that you're doing that opting. So that's part one. And the part two of the question is really nitty gritty. I was looking at your FAQs. So I go from B to F, A, and Q. Um, I was looking at your frequently asked questions. And there was a question on there that explicitly asked, do I have to be a member of Labshul in order for my family to experience this BMITSA process? And the explicit answer was no. You're not required to be a member of Labshul in order to do this. We encourage people and we actually offer for free like a one-year ability to participate in all of Labshul's programming because we think that will be a valuable experience, but you don't have to be a member. And I read that as a very radical, awesome act because we inhabit a Jewish ecosystem where if we were being honest about the answer to what is be mitzvah, the honest answer would be it's a tool to make people synagogue members. It's a tool mm. to get people to sign up to be synagogue members, because if they're not members, then their kid is not allowed to have a B mitzvah. And so I think what you're doing in inverting that and in upending that is really sacred work. So the two parts are basically, why might we benefit? Why might we opt into this B mitzvah framework that is a mixture of English and Hebrew? What might that reflect about what's happening in this rite of passage? And the second question, why is it so important that we we see this ritual not as like an economic lever to strengthen an institution, but rather a set of other things? That was a great question. Thanks. So first of all, I want to say the reality is that the people that my community serve, and perhaps some of the listeners here, but the majority of American Jews, and I will speak also for Israeli Jews and European Jews, are not people for whom belonging to the Jewish community with a set of literacy assumptions that perhaps were the norm a generation ago, that's who we're talking about. So of course we're going to meet people in the both and of American and Jewish, of Hebrew and colloquial, of a bit of a wink and a bit of a humor and for sure a spectrum of, of accessibility, whether it's financial and gender. Yes. And if someone is squeamish or uncomfortable with like B mitzvah is not the traditional, well, bat mitzvah was made up a hundred years ago. So we're an evolving people and we have to evolve if we're going to satisfy our responsibility to become who we are in every generation and meet the needs of this generation. What I'm interested in, in the rites of passage for young people is not so much that they walk out of it as a Jew or that they walk out as an adult, because neither is true. You're not an adult at 14 and your Jewishness keeps happening. I want people to have a meaningful experience of growing into adolescence, of growing up and knowing that they're doing it powered by Jewish tradition, that the kid who's be mitzvah I'm going to be doing in a couple of weeks, whose father is Jewish and mother is not, who according to halakha and the reform and some other Jewish communities, no question this kid is Jewish. In other Jewish communities, this kid is not Jewish. I want them to feel 100% proud of their legacy. I want them to feel empowered to know I have spent a year thinking about the Torah. I understand more of the laws, more of the legends. I'm only getting started. I'm going to demonstrate my ability to be a critical thinker about a piece of scripture. I'm going to voice my opinion. I'm going to ask you a question that I thought about. I will do what has been done for generations before me. I will comment on the sacred text. I will lead some prayers, perhaps, or poems in a way that feels authentic to me. I will look great. I will feel that I am stepping up and saying, here I am. I'm growing up. 
That's honest. That's authentic. We're not asking them to be something that they're not. We're not asking them to to buy into a Jewish identity that might not be what they came in with or what their family wants. I am pretty confident, and I've seen it happen again and again, that this gives the young person and their family a great deal of curiosity, a great deal of fascination and gratitude and joy about wanting to explore more. And they're going to feel good about belonging to this tradition. So our bottom line is when I meet with these families, this is not a rite of passage about you becoming a Jew. This is a rite of passage for you becoming a human being, powered by Jewish tradition, whether that's the storytelling part, whether that's thinking about philanthropy and community organizing and tzedek and tzedakah, that's part of growing up. That's whether you're learning about the Jewish calendar, how to make sense of this complicated calendar, which is not the calendar that you grew up with. We don't teach Hebrew necessarily, but we want to make sure that there's at least 18 key Hebrew terms that these kids learn along the way, and that they do some work with with ethical and moral engagement, that they do some stuff together as a group, as a cohort, and do one-on-one with a trainer, that the families, that the parents get engaged with this learning as well. A lot of what I'm describing is what many other people are doing as well. And I think in the last 20 years, we're seeing this upsurge of a lot of creative opportunities because we understand that of all the things that Jews do, this tween rite of passage, for reasons both completely understood and baffling, has risen to the top of the must-haves. Yep. And while you are describing the situation where people join a synagogue for three years, pay their dues, and for the most part, five minutes after the Barbat B mitzvah, they leave because they didn't get nourished. We want to make sure that it's a opt-in opportunity for them, which is why they don't have to become partners or members of Labshul. But we're also salespeople of what is a really exciting way to live your life with Jewish content. And we see that families show up. So I'd love to turn to the all ages piece here. I, I'm imagining like movie ratings. There's like PG-13 and then there's R and whatever. Like, I guess PG-13. I, honestly, I think most B-mitzvahs are probably more in the PG category. Maybe PG-13 would be fun. But um, the all ages component, I mean, on your website, I apologize that I'm like referencing your website and specific FAQs and all of that. I, I, I'm doing that because I think there's power here. I have not in my memory at least, seen other organizational websites where B mitzvah was a category under which there was equally, you know, 12, 13-year-olds and adults. There was just two elements of the drop-down menu or whatever. And I'm deeply inspired by that. I think that when we when we treat the 12, 13-year-old B mitzvah as kind of the primary, the default, what we tell people is that if you're a Jew by choice who converts at a later age, if you are you by birth, but for whatever reason you didn't have a B-mitzvah at that age and you look to later in life, that you're doing something that's kind of less exciting. It's not that we need to diminish the importance of what's happening at 12 and 13, but we need to celebrate, amplify, elevate what's happening at other ages when people seek out, you know, rites of passage or forms of growth. And I've mentioned a number of times, um, and I did this myself, and I, when I was 26, you know, twice the age of 13, I created my own Bar 26 I called it 
for myself. <laughs> and I plan to when I'm 39 in a number of years. I, like, I plan to do it every 13 years because for me, it's not like I I flipped a switch and I went from off to on and like I'm I'm sort of there now. To me, this is a process that individuals would benefit from going through, communities would benefit going through on a very regular basis. So I guess, can you talk to us a little bit about B Mitzvah beyond just the 1213 set of folks and how this plays a role in your in your organization and your vision for other age groups as well? Yes. So over the years when we have done a B Mitzvah, somebody would always come to us after the ceremony and said, wow, this is the first time in my life I understand prayer. I understand the Torah. I am moved. And by the way, I had a bar mitzvah at 13. It was meaningless. I'm now 80. I want to have one like this. I want what she's having. Or I never had one. I'm not even Jewish. Can I do one of these? And this kept happening. And we kept saying, yeah, no, we're focusing on other things. And then at some point, you stop and say, wait a minute. And that had to do with my own aging. And starting to think if what we do with 13-year-olds is so powerful and their parents, grandparents, siblings, immediate family, in some way are involved in the process and in the, the delivery of the day, of the ritual, and we see the impact, what would it be like to introduce this concept of storytelling as a human rites of passage, as a way to mark transitions and initiations? What would that look like? The first uh, pilot we began four years ago was thinking about aging, about how people not just become older, but how can they become elders? There are already several programs in the community and beyond wise aging, groups for men, groups for women, groups for looking at the fact that we're living longer, we have more access to time, to learning, to ideally health than our ancestors may have had. And there isn't really a clear way to mark 65. Yes, there's a retirement party. But what does it mean to take time and ask yourself the questions? Who am I now? What questions have not been asked? How can I be delegated with the responsibility of being an elder in this community in an obsessively youth-focused culture? So thinking about this rite of passage, this liminal journey into elderhood, which is very much happening in many different uh, sectors in society. And people in our own community who are boomers who said, like, we want a special conversation around this. We co-created this program called Generate, which is now in its third cohort. We said 55 plus. It's for the most part 60, 65 plus till people in their 80s meet for about 18 months, focus on questions that have to do with life that have to do with purpose, that have to do with aging, thinking about anything from ethical will to how do I want to be buried? What are the values I want to leave my children and what are the values I want to live with? And then into that process, uh, which is a, a group cohort with peer-to-peer -peer and some guidance, we introduced the storytelling method. So this group too learned how to be storytellers and become the translators and the commentators and the interpreters of a single Torah story that we chose together, and that became their uh, concluding ritual, where they all came up to the Torah. One person learned how to chant, and another person learned how to create a midrash, and somebody else came in as a political commentator on the story, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so the final 
Ceremony is a display of their talents, telling a Jewish story together on their own terms. So that was cohort one. That was four years ago. It started in person in New York City, and then COVID hit. And you know what? These were older people who by then knew Zoom. And then the rest of cohort one was on Zoom. Uh, cohort two was only on Zoom. It was national with folks from Seattle and Chicago, Florida, New York. And now cohort three that we're halfway through is New York-based. Two years ago, we understood that it's not just about aging 65 plus. What happens when you turn 40? Or as you said, Lex, you know, 26 or 39. So we're thinking about flourishing at any age and inviting people to take a year, whatever midlife means to you, and ask yourself three questions. What have I inherited that matters to me? Who am I now? And then who do I want to be? How do I want to be? We do that individually. We do that as a group. We had a one-year pilot last year called Passage for folks between 25 and 55, introducing the storytelling method. And they co-created a story uh, event together at our weekend retreat last November. And the story they chose was based on the Torah story that was read on the calendar on the weekend of our retreat. That happened to have been the story of Jacob and Esau, the two twins who are vying for their father's blessing. And the focus that this group chose to talk about is scarcity and abundance. Why does Esau not get blessed while Jacob gets blessed? How does that look like when we're talking about a reality when we want to dismantle racism, when we want to be feminists and we want to celebrate queer pride? How can we get beyond the either or of binary, which is in the Torah? Esau doesn't get blessed. Jacob does. That's what they focused on. And the storytelling they created was so powerful, attended by the entire community. You can hear my excitement. I am pretty convinced that rites of passage is where more and more people in the Jewish community are seeking to get into the conversation. And so, you know, we talk a lot about birthright as your birthright and go to Israel. Rites of passage is a birthright, literally. Birthright, R-I-T-E. I see I see what you're doing. So there you go. So, And I'm talking about human rights of passage. It's a human right. And I'm talking more to the folks in my age group. We're in our 50s. We need this. And I need to think about aging because if all the doctors are right, then I'm going to live till 90. How? Where? With whom? What are the values that I want to really focus on so I have so many years to be a productive agent in society? So we are slowly moving towards focusing on rites of passage as a way that I think will define what Labshul does. What if we were a congregation whose main focus is rites of passage and having these small cohorts of 10, 15, 20 people who spend a year, two, three, getting to know each other really well and getting to know themselves really well and exploring their spirituality, their Jewishness, their humanity, and helps them grow up into the next phase of human And they do so orbiting around a congregation that meets regularly. Once a month, we have a big Shabbat. We have the big holidays. We have some learning opportunities to go deeper, some justice opportunities, but not not much more than that. Your average modern Jew doesn't have bandwidth for the type of every Shabbos morning, every Friday night, Mondays and Thursdays. That's not the liberal Jewish diet. So I'm, I'm curious about, and we're beginning to explore how can these rites of passage coming of age at every life stage is a birthright, an opportunity, and an invitation 
to really deepen your commitment to who you are also as a Jew. Sounds like you're kind of inventing the uh, synagogue of my dreams. Actually, the only thing that I'm a little disappointed, but I was starting to be disappointed. But then when you said it was going to be like once a month, I wasn't disappointed because somebody asked me recently, like if I lived in New York, you know, how would I know? Not that I'm planning to necessarily, but uh, if I was uh, living in New York, how would I how would I uh, choose a synagogue? Would I shul hop and ch- check out different synagogues? And I said, no, I, I would go to lab shul. So um, <laughs> I did just want to actually share one thing that's early in your, your answer when you were talking about how this all evolved from your experience in the bi mitzvah. It occurred to me, like I kind of remembered that part of why Judaism Unbound exists is because of a similar conversation that I once had when I was working on campus. I don't remember if I was at Hillel at the time or we had a kind of post-Hillel thing for a few years. And I was walking with one of our board members and I was describing all these things that we're doing with college students. And she said to me, oh, I really wish that I had that. And I said, yeah, I know, I get it that your kid isn't at, you know, a school with a program like this. It's unfortunate. And she said, no, 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 I wish I had that for me. And I said, oh, you you wish you had that for you? And she said, yeah, because I realized when I became an empty nester that I was doing Judaism all along just for the kids. I wasn't really getting anything out of it. And I need to have an experience. If I'm going to continue with this Judaism stuff, I'm going to now need an experience as an adult as an empty nester, as an older adult, right, that says, yeah, this actually contributes to my life in a way that's meaningful and valuable. And that was some of the genesis of what ultimately became Judaism Unbound, because we said, Mm -hmm. hey, what would it look like to create this experience that we're doing on campus for people of all ages? And the internet seemed like a good place to do that. We could reach more people, et cetera. But it's interesting to think about what that looks like out in the world. I think a lot of times the pressure of various forces in the Jewish world are that you could kind of stay in your lane, or I think it's really interesting what you're talking about here. And so I'm wondering uh, two things. One is that earlier in the conversation, you talked about specifically the curriculum that you've developed for the teenagers about storytelling. I'm curious what that looks like, because that feels like one of the distinguishing elements here that says, what would it look like for me at any age to go through this kind of workshop or this kind of experience that helps me be a storyteller? Like, what is that? What do I actually learn? How does that work? And then I'm wondering about this vision of the synagogue-like organization of the future that has lots of rites of passages at different times that ha- that meets monthly. Like, what would that look like as you kind of dream of it? Because I, I think that uh, a lot of us would like to hear that dream fleshed out because I think that's the unstated dream of many of us. Think of Alex, and you mentioned it before. Where does money change hands in the Jewish community? People have a value proposition around this idea of a bar mitzvah. Mm-hmm. They know they need to pay for it. When else do your average unaffiliated Jew pay for something Jewish? Maybe a Your cemetery a, plot. I'm, I'm not saying that too cynically. No, I, like, no, I don't mean that to be like a mic drop. I think that's the other answer. 100%. 100%. 100%. Maybe the rabbi for the wedding. Maybe a high holiday ticket. But um, money changes hands around the barbat mitzvah, mitzvah, which is not insignificant. We know that it is a big driver of participation in Jewish life and unparticipation in Jewish life. Because when you once again go through temple, Beth, whatever, 
and you got this experience that doesn't speak to your modern theology, sociology, who we are, you've checked out. And uh, I recently did a, a late night screening of A Serious Man, the Cohen Brothers, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. philosophical masterpiece that you need to watch four times to know what the hell is going on there. And of course, the bar mitzvah is at the heart of it. And the sort of the vapid American, in this case, high, like <laughs> insignificant. And you're like, wow, what a wasted opportunity. Although even at that wasted opportunity, there's a fragile moment where those parents have a moment, like something happens. And even the most mitzvahs, people walk away thinking, well, something happened. So much more can happen. We were just in a conversation with our friends at Wilderness Torah. We're doing beautiful work around somatic body, nature, taking kids and grownups out of town for a night or two or three. It's a West Coast thing, but we'd love to do it here too. We've been working with the folks at Active Aging. They're working very thoughtfully about active aging and, and a convening on a national level about longevity and all the opportunities and challenges there. Growing up is a family affair. This is not just about the kid, no matter what name is on the, you know, Mylar Kipa. Everyone's growing up. So paying attention to that. And then the storytelling skill is really about dismantling the distance. And if you're thinking about the tools that you want a kid to have in their back pocket when they go and explore their lives and maybe their Jewish identity, is chanting the Haftarah or the Torah the most important tool? A 21st century modern American Jewish kid, that's what they should spend 20 hours on? I'm not so sure. It might come in handy at some point. But being a critical thinker, one that says, okay, this is what the Torah is. Yes, from God, not from God. These are the stories. It's told every week. I'm invited to be a participant in the conversation. These margins on the side of the book, they're for me to bring in my scribbles, to understand what I'm reading, to make sense of it, to talk back to it, to bring my full sense into it. And so that when I stand in front of my family and community, they know what's going on. They're moved. They're interested. We're not just mumbling something. That's a skill. The translator of Torah into vernacular was phased out of synagogue life a thousand years ago for a bunch of political financial reasons. And we are bringing that profession back. And I'll just say, when I started storytelling in 99, for about a decade, that was the vision. Bring back the Torah service as a engaging theater opportunity. For a whole bunch of reasons, we became lab shuls, storytelling sort of went to the back burner. But where it lives and where I want it to live much more profoundly is impacting people's ability to look at the Bible, at Jewish literacy, at their own story with eyes wide open, with the ability to criticize lovingly and when we need to with assertiveness and to be the masters of our own story. I'll give you an example. When I turned 40, I was asked to reflect on my own bar mitzvah. My bar mitzvah in 1982 in New York City, my Torah portion was the chapters in Leviticus in which, among other forbidden relations, is same-sex, male, love. And at the age of 13, standing up on the Bima at Fifth Avenue Synagogue, a very orthodox synagogue, I, I knew what's up. And I stumbled my way through chanting those verses I've Still know the whole thing in Hebrew. Clearly, nobody talked about it. I didn't talk about it. The sermon that somebody wrote for me was all about charity. 
But I remember that moment. And when I turned 40, I rewrote my Bar Mitzvah sermon as a coming out speech. And by writing it, there was my 40-year-old self standing next to my 13-year-old self going through another rite of passage, loud and proud and dealing with the complexity and toxicity of Jewish tradition while embracing and celebrating the goodness that this tradition has to have. That, for me, was a very meaningful milestone. It was a milestone that allowed me to become the next phase of who I am, which is a rabbi. That's when I began rabbinical school. And I know for many people in the queer community, that piece of writing was a a revelation of the possibility of being in conversation with our past, but not letting our past dominate our present and our future. That's the experience that people are having when they do this work seriously, that they've done it through Generate, Passage, and even some of the younger be mitzvah uh, teens and tweens, who at that age might not have all the wherewithal to understand the depth of what's going on, but they do enough. And then the people who sit there and they watch this kid who was, you know, in diapers a little time ago, actually commenting on Torah in a way that was maybe not possible a couple of years earlier, it is a huge boost to one's sense of belonging. I mean, you really have me whirling in a positive way. I mean, that question you asked, or you framed it as, I think, a rhetorical question. You were talking about how, like, you know, if we were to ask the most important skills of being Jewish or Jewish toolbox tools to apply to our human existence, I don't think we would come away with chanting Haftorah or chanting Torah. I'm actually genuinely deeply interested in every one of our listeners and every one of our listeners' communities, like having that conversation out loud with a friend or like, I don't care if it's in a synagogue context. It it would be a great thing to do in a synagogue context, but like, what are the answers to the question, key basic human skills, but also Jewish skills? And, you know, that's not even really two discrete categories. What are the Jewish skills that are also human skills? What are the human skills that we can understand through Jewish prisms? I think that that conversation happening in a public way, not just like some board committee that is whatever, like having it in a really excited, energizing way could be an incredible way to kickstart a community's or an individual's journey into a new stage of B-Mitzvah. I think, because I've heard already from some communities and some people that are involved in spiritual leadership listening to our episodes lately, they're like, we kind of want to do, like, we want to actualize what you're talking about. We want to change how we go about B-Mitzvah. Like, how? I think that conversation, what Mm -hmm. are the core things? I think different communities might have different answers. I'm very persuaded by the storytelling answer. As I think about it, in conjunction with B'nai Lappi's narrative that's so important to our podcast of the master story, if mm-hmm. one becomes a storyteller in a world where we have in- inherited a quote-unquote master story, you in effect become a shaper of the whole widget. The master story is Judaism. You're a storyteller. That means you are telling Judaism. You are creating it. I think that is such a powerful and persuasive argument for sort of a core organizing principle around which we shape be mitzvah. Mm-hmm. And I do think there are other authentic answers that another community or another person who's shaping their own B26, 39, 52, or 13 could come to. And so I guess I'm curious to hear from you, not that storytelling is not the right answer, but what are other pieces 
that are sort of central organizing frameworks of how you understand almost like the I'm thinking of like chemical like when when elements combine and become a compound like what are the actual things that are happening where a becomes b in a b mitzvah for any age and and how at labshul or otherwise might one sort of shape ritual out of that or shape experience out of that wow I'm excited for your excitement and I'm excited for this conversation to happen. I think we really need to ask ourselves, um, story is not there for its own sake. Story is a gateway to the soul. And the reasons why Torah or the Greek myths exist is because these stories, these sacred stories provide our soul with a vocabulary of growth. So if it's Jacob and Esau, if it's the prohibitions on sexuality, if it's Noah and the dove, it's Moses and the golden calf, whatever. We always work with the people who learn to use this technique to go deeper. What about this speaks to this current moment in political reality? What about the story speaks to you? Where do you find yourself in the story? And that storytelling technique leads us to soul growth. Now, when I'm saying soul, I'm talking about spirituality. I'm talking about how do we access divinity? How do we access the inner voices that help us become who we are in a world where religiosity is so problematic, is top-down, is bureaucratic, is for the most part vapid, is identified with body negative and sex negative and patriarchal narratives of organized religion that make most people identify as nuns or walk away. And yet the soul, neshama, nefesh, anima, all the names we know, needs attention. Where do you go to learn about your soul as a 13-year-old or as a 50-year-old or an 85-year-old thinking about your death? Where do you learn how to be a lover I'm not just talking about how to actually love in the carnal sense. So soul matters, love matters, justice matters, body matters, right? And the toolkit that I want a 13-year-old and a 50-year-old to handle is access to these conversations, permission to these conversations, not this is God, let's talk about God, or this is the mitzvah and do tzedakah. Let's unpack it. And again, there are scaffoldings here where at 13 or 16, 18 or 50, you might address these questions in different ways. Imagine that in the community of the future that Dan is now excited about, great, this is how it works. You're going to have your 13-year-old be mitzvah, which by the way is a leftover from a thousand years ago when by 13 you were out of the house and married. We're stuck with 13. Is it the best behavioral moment? Many have, argument, many have argued about that. Let's say we stick with 13. It's this move through puberty into adolescence. But then there's a moment at 16 or 18, confirmation that has been attempted by the reform movement and other movements. Uh, what happens at 21? Drinking age, let's say. You finish college, you finish the army, whatever it is. What happens at 30? What happens at 40? What happens at 50? What happens at 65? Can these be repeated moments? Can this be a spiral of these values being questioned? And you at 30 become a mentor to the one at 13. And you at 85 are mentoring the 50-year-old. Part of it is happening organically. Part of it is not. I'm in the middle of trying to read a text by Erich Neumann, who was one of Jung's students. 
and who wrote a lot about the homo mysticus, that when you reach middle midlife, I think he's talking about 50s, you are more open to the mystical. You have a little more tenderness to be asking questions about life and death and purpose and soulfulship, soulfulness, maybe soulfulship, than you were able to when you were younger and you were thinking about other things, whatever it is, making a living or making out. So what does it mean to really have these invitations towards the big questions? We are far from doing it right at Labshul. We're on a small budget trying to figure it out. But the dream of a rite of passage academy where we train people to be the trainers, where we pay attention to these big questions, where storytelling and soul craft and being out in nature and taking care of each other that's what you learn as you move from phase to phase on this human journey. What I'm thinking about is that two things potentially happen at a rite of passage. One is that it's an individual rite of passage. It's internal. I have now passed from this state to this state, and it happened to me, and it was meaningful to me, and it has changed the way I think, or it hasn't, or whatever, but it's all assessed in terms of the individual. And then there's the capacity that the rite of passage marks the transition of a person from one role in the community to a new role in the community. And I was thinking about it specifically in terms of the elder eldering process that you're talking about, but I think it potentially applies all the way through as you started to allude to it. And so I'm also wondering, right, like what would a newly imagined Jewish community look like where people were playing these various roles. And specifically, when we're talking about eldering, right, for sure there's this process that I need to go through this transition to understand that I'm getting older, that I may be more open to mysticism, that I may be contemplating my death, that my relationships may be changing, that my children are in a different relationship to me, all of that stuff. But there's also the possibility, and I've certainly been the beneficiary of it, for people who have placed themselves into the role of an elder in the community. And I'm thinking about very specific people that are not rabbis, they don't have ordination, but they have functioned in my life the way that I think you kind of dream that a rabbi might, mm-hmm. and or, or a parent, and they're not my parents, but they're somebody that has stepped into that kind of role. And I don't think that they went to a rite of passage academy. Like, I think that I've been the beneficiary <laughs> of these miracles that people have stepped into that kind of role. And I'm wondering whether the process of having the personal rite of passage and the process of perhaps having a public rite of passage that shapes people into what I mean, what I think about when I use the term elder is somebody who has a role in the community, that they are an elder. That's how it's kind of used in the Bible. And that's how I'm kind of thinking about it. And it was kind of eye-opening to me to realize that initially you were thinking about it more as an individual rite of passage. And so I guess I'm wondering whether it's the same process or we're talking about two different processes. And what would what would it look like to have both whether they're the same or different, through Mm -hmm. all the different rites of passage through life, where they would become this kind of new uh, superstructure of mentoring or of care, where the older, I guess maybe the, I I think about it as the older giving to the younger, but maybe it wouldn't even just be limited to that. It can absolutely both ways, because the older teach the younger about 
you know, how to love and how to live and how to save money. And the younger teach the older how to use Instagram. So, you know, we can go both ways. Um, you know, it makes me think about what you're asking, Dan, about the eldering both privately and collectively. For me, the significant rite of passage at the age of 13 was the fact that from the day my bar mitzvah was over, I put on tefillin every day, right? I had to be participating in this religious ritual that in my family, in my community, in the Orthodox world, a 13-year-old boy does every morning. And I was able to participate in a minion, in a quorum. I counted as an adult, which meant I had to show up. And also, I had to fast on Yom Kippur. That's a switch, right? I'm taking on a responsibility for the community in ways that I didn't before I was 13. I'm not an elder, but I'm a responsible holder of the quorum. I can be one of the 10 so that somebody else can say Kaddish. And at 12, I couldn't. So how do we translate and adapt this this kernel of eldering, responsibility-taking, growing up, and take that throughout life? But if at 13, I can be one of the 10 that can make sure that you can say Kaddish, what can I do at 30? And what's my responsibility? What's my obligation to my community? Like, what do I get? What do I give? What happens at 50? You've been around the block. Oh, my God. That didn't used to be, you know, average lifespan. And now, okay, oh, half a century. What are you going to pass on? You're right that organically we have these, these models of mentoring and teaching and being there for each other. And thank goodness for grandparents and, you know, people who retire and have time and generosity of spirit. And what if we introduce that as a, <laughs> not a conveyor belt, but as an ongoing journey? It's almost like, like, you know, I've never done karate very seriously. I dropped off at the first pre-stripe, whatever that was, right? But you get a stripe with every level. Your mastery grows. I think we have it informally, but I am curious what it would look like to embrace it a little deeper. This is really brilliant. And it's something I was, you gave much more articulate language. I, I was thinking about this in the camp context because I, I had talked about how, to me, summer camp was sort of the most real form of, quote unquote, becoming an adult in a Jewish context I think I will ever experience. Because I went from a third grader being mm -hmm. cared for by camp counselors and others and then over the course of the next 10 years, I transformed. It was like I'm a, I was a Pokemon evolution and I was the counselor and I was literally caring for others. Like that to me, if mm -hmm. I were to distill what you described with Tefillin, maybe even in a bigger way, like I was responsible for others in the way they had been responsible for me just a couple of years before. That to me was, and it was a Jewish summer camp, but like we never named it. And so now you've got me thinking, I mean, What's fascinating about B-Mitzvah in the traditional age is it's usually seventh grade. And so that actually positions itself pretty well for the time period in American context because eighth grade is the oldest grade in middle school. It is actually an elder role. Like it's sometimes I try to get myself back in certain mindsets of life, but like I, I happen to go to an interesting school context where fifth through eighth grade was all one school. It was not just seventh and eighth. So for me... There was this situation where all the fifth graders would look at the eighth graders like a foot taller than them, but they were in the same school. And it was this real elder role. You got to walk up a special staircase mm. in my school. It was the eighth grade stairs. Wow. Like, true, and my school was very problematic. It was a private school. There was a lot of harmful, even anti-Semitic. But like it was 
a beautiful notion of, ah, as you become an eighth grader, you are in fact a leader in the school context. And it was used in like pressury ways. We were not given the chance to actually like mentor the younger kids in that big a way. But in a Jewish context, I think we could. And so I guess I'm curious, like, might it be that we try out like, okay, so the, the, the year of 12 and 13 year olds has their be mitzvah. Now they're in eighth grade. What if they do lead something for the current fifth or sixth grader? I don't know. What, whatever they're at the beginning of the be mitzvah process. With, like, I don't know exactly what that would be. But as we close, I'm wondering if you have visions for what that might be like. Or even if it's just, you know, in high school, they, they do something for the be mitzvah students. We start to model what you're describing. A hundred percent what you're describing. I think, again, on some levels, part of it exists. When you're 14, you begin babysitting, right? Maybe you start making money. Is there a way, and there are so many congregations and models where for sure the ones who graduated, the be mitzvah, take care of the younger kids. I know my own kids, a congregation, B'nai Jeshurun, in the Upper West Side, where they live and where they have grown up, that's how they pay back. They take care of the younger children. And they have enough proficiency and literacy and agency to do so. But what if we take it to the next level? And the camp metaphor you use that metaphor, the camp example is real because it is real. It's embodied. It's embodied living in a way that we uh, we know is where these, these human journeys live so powerfully. We were just in a conversation about Hever Kadisha. When do you become somebody who takes care of the dead in our community? And we said, well, what if that's something that happens after 50? What if we were to think about different things and different skill sets and different mindsets that with maturity, I am able to both handle and be some kind of a model for people who come after me and of service to the community. So these are all questions. I can say that at this point, LabShul has been uh, providing these uh, annual journeys for teens for be mitzvahs, and we keep doing so uh, with a cohort of about 15 families a year. We can imagine growing it significantly with more trainers, um, we're in the process of figuring out what does this adult program look like? How will that grow on a larger scale, locally, nationally? There seems to be a buzz, and for sure the notion of aging wisely and aging kindly, and uh, let it trickle down all the way to to the way babies grow and all the way we honor our elders and how we think multi-generationally about learning there's a growing yearning. These are the questions we're thinking about. And I think the American Jewish community, and I'm so glad you're having these series of conversations, could do a much better job with B Mitzvah for 13-year-olds 13 and for all ages. Thank you so much, Amichai, for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. I'm so glad. Thank you for the invitation. Anytime. Well, fair enough. We will definitely take you up on that anytime, sometime in the future. You have been such a great guest today and in the past, and I'm sure there will be another anytime to take you up on that offer in the future. So thanks, of course, to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation, and we hope that you'll tune in again with us in the future. We've got some more episodes in this amazing B Mitzvah unit coming your way in the next few weeks. We hope that you will stay tuned for those. And if you haven't heard the earlier episodes in the series, definitely flash back to our previous episodes recently in your favored podcast app. You can find other B Mitzvah episodes related to this one just by scrolling a little bit. So do that. 
And uh, a reminder of what Dan said at the top, we deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you're able to send our way, which you can do on either a recurring basis or just as a one-time gift at judaismunbound.com slash donate. And we always, at the end of our episodes, take some time to remind you, be in touch with us. We love hearing from you. We love getting messages, getting emails, whatever it takes. So here are all the ways you can be in touch. First, there's our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagrams. All of those are at Judaism Unbound for our handles. Second, there's our website, judaismunbound.com, where you can find show notes for this episode and all sorts of other goodies related to our organization and our work. And of course, you can email us at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. Thank you so, so much for listening. Since this is our first episode since Shavuot Live, holy smokes, that was incredible fun. It was unreal to spend some time with over a thousand of you in various Zoom forms and live stream forms. We had an amazing time, and as always, that's really the highlight of our yearly calendar, and we can't wait to pull it off again next year. So look forward to 2024, 24 hours in 2024. That will be Shavuot Live again next time. And the very, very last note to bring you before the end of this episode is that support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.